So in your Bible, turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. The fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 1. If you're just joining us, we've been going through a series here, here at Redeemer Students titled, Who Are We? And we're taking a look at different aspects, different core pillars, different core truths of what identifies Redeemer students. So first we looked at the gospel in close detail, how God has reconciled man with God through the work of his son Jesus. The next week, which was last week, we looked at scripture, why God's word is so important, why it's living and active, why it's unlike any other book, and why we need it. And tonight, we are going to be looking at discipleship. So my title tonight is True Disciples, if you're taking notes. We're going to be looking at John 1, verse 35 and following. And I'll read it for us. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples with him heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, that is four o'clock, the end of the day. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall now be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, we ask that our hearts would be ready to receive it. You would convict us by your spirit, through the working of your word, that you lead us to repentance and ultimately a greater love for you. I know that only you can do this, and so we ask that you would work this miracle. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So like I said, my title tonight is True Disciples, True Disciples, colon, or dot, 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 because we're going to be looking at three characteristics of true disciples. But before we start trying to break down our passage, let's look a little bit closer at what's going on in this chapter, in this book. This is the first sermon we're preaching out of John, so it's important to get some context. If you look at verse 35, it says this, the next day, which is referencing the fact that this is actually the third day in a, in a week of events. And so what's the first day? If you look at verse 19, this is the first day in this sequence of events. And what happens on the first day is all of these Pharisees come to John the Baptist, our character tonight, and they're asking questions about who he is and what he's doing and why is he baptizing people in the wilderness. And John gives an answer that's pointing to Jesus. The next day, which is verse 29, John actually sees Jesus. John the Baptist actually sees Jesus for the first time. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God who, would take, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when John was seeing Jesus for the first time, this was Jesus' entrance after, if some of you remember, being in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights with only water and and the angels caring for him. And he was obviously very smelly, so he needed a bath, which is baptism. Just kidding, that's not good theology. (laughs) 
But Jesus is coming to John the Baptist, John the Baptist to get baptized. And after this, he begins his public ministry as an adult. This is where we first see the title Lamb of God. And we're going to unpack that a little bit tonight. So that's verse 29 through 34. And then we reach our passage, verse 35, the third day. John the Baptist in our passage is standing with two of his disciples. This is interesting because they had just seen Jesus the day before. And now he is bringing two of his friends to see Jesus, who he just saw the day before. So he brings his two friends to a spot where they know Jesus is probably going to walk. And as soon as Jesus walks by, it says in verse 36, he looked at Jesus as they walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist here is identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God. Behold, the word means to look with excitement. And so Jesus is being looked at with excitement from John the Baptist and also from his followers who are now pursuing Jesus. And John tells his followers to pursue them. He understands that though they have been following him, though they have been John's disciples, as our text says, now they're going to be Jesus' disciples. They do this because they recognize who Jesus is. And that's my first point tonight. True disciples, number one, recognize Jesus. True disciples recognize Jesus. What does it mean to recognize Jesus? Well, I was at the Y last week, and a guy that I played softball with like a long time ago, like probably six or seven years ago, comes up to me at the gym, and, and he asked me if I recognized him. And I remembered his face, but I couldn't quite remember his name. I was going back and forth between one of two, and I didn't want to say the wrong one, so I didn't say anything. And he, he actually thought that I was my older brother, so he didn't recognize me very well either. And I was thinking about this and just wondering, has anyone else ever told you, oh, I, did, I almost didn't recognize you. You know, usually it comes from like a distant family member at a, at a reunion or something like, you know, a parent that you haven't seen in like 10 years. Oh, I almost didn't recognize you. You, you look so grown up now. <clears throat> when someone says, I don't recognize you, they're not saying, I don't see you. They're saying, the thought of you in my mind doesn't match up with, the appearance of you. They're saying how you appear before me doesn't match what I know, what I understand, what the memory in my brain is about you. There is a disconnect between what they see and what they know. But that assumes that actually, that they actually know who you are. And in our passage, Jesus is visible to these disciples. He's physically visible. They are watching him walk by. But he's more than that. They have knowledge of him. They know that he is the Lamb of God. They have knowledge of the Old Testament prophecies which point to this coming Messiah. And therefore, to recognize Jesus is to identify him according to who he actually is. According to who he actually is. Well, how do we know who he actually is? How do we know who Jesus actually is? How do you know who Jesus is? You might say, my parents have told me, or Sunday school, or... A lesson at, at my school or Wednesday nights or whatever, fill in the blank. But ultimately, we know Jesus through his word. We know Jesus as revealed in scripture. We know him because he's revealed in the Bible. And he's not just revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in one chapter of the book of Acts. But Jesus is revealed in the whole Bible. Starting from Genesis all the way to Revelation, Jesus is revealed. How is Jesus revealed? 
not always called Jesus, but he is revealed because his father is revealed. And that's, that's somewhat of a misconception that we tend to have is that Jesus is a little bit different than the father. But according to Hebrews 1, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is identical to the father in his nature. When Jesus was on earth, he was the physical bodily display of everything that God the father is in heaven. And every part of the Father that is on display in the Old Testament is the same Jesus that is displayed in the New Testament. We often fall into the trap because of our culture, because of our misunderstanding of God's word, because of our misconceived notions of who God is, that Jesus is is the loving or he's the gentle part of God, whereas the Father, though he still loves, he's the one who's more stern. He's more firm. He's the one that has the wrath. Jesus is, is the nice one, right? But that's a misconception. Jesus and the Father are one, according to John ten thirty. Jesus was fully God. He was equal to him in all ways. He still is. Matching his character in every way, possessing the same proportions of love and wrath, grace and truth, truth, mercy, and holiness. And he matches his father in heaven. Jesus was the exact imprint of God. And John the Baptist knew this. And many of you know this as revealed in the Bible. He knew what Jesus had come to do. And you can easily see by looking back at what I referenced at the beginning, verse 29, that Jesus had come to take away the sin of the world. This is how John identifies Jesus. But how do you identify Jesus? Who is Jesus in your mind? How do you meet with Jesus? Is he a mushy pushover? Is he soft and incapable? Is he a harsh critic and a cruel opponent? Student, you do not have the ability to be a true disciple unless you recognize Jesus according to who he is. How do we know who he is? It's revealed in the Bible. There's a saying that some of you may be familiar with that says something along the lines of, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It doesn't matter what you believe. All roads are going to get to heaven one day as long as you believe it earnestly. And here's a quote to combat that. Worship without knowledge is idolatry. If we all just start bowing down to something and don't know what it is, if it's not God, it's idolatry. We need to know the one that we worship. The Bible speaks in direct opposition to the idea of sincerity being good enough. In John chapter 14, verse 6, later in this book, it says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except through the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. You will not reach God or heaven or escape from hell, let alone be a true disciple If you don't recognize Jesus according to who he is, he is the bridge between God and man, the lamb who died to take away sins. And not just sins generally, not just my sins, not just your leader's sins, not just your friend's sins, but your sins. If you trust Jesus, he takes away your sins. So what happens when we recognize Jesus as Savior? Well, it changes our desires but it also changes our behavior. If we look further in our passage, picking up where we left off, 
After John the Baptist sees Jesus and recognizes him, in verse 37, it says this, the two disciples who were originally following John, remember, heard him say this, that this is the Messiah. And they stopped following John and they started following Jesus. Point number two, true disciples pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus. As soon as these two disciples who'd been following John the Baptist for some time saw Jesus, they stopped following him and they instead went after Jesus. Why? Because as John earlier said, he said, the one who is coming after me is greater than me, of whom I am not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. John understood his role in this. He was supposed to be a connector, a pointer to Jesus. He was supposed to remind the people who were there that I am not Jesus, I am not the Messiah, but here he is. And you just watched him walk by you. (laughs) According to the Gospel of John, verse 38 is the first time that Jesus speaks in the book. First time he speaks. And what are his words? What are his words? Look at verse 38. Jesus turned as soon as they start following him and he saw them following and he said to them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What do you long for? And Jesus with compassion, his heart sees that these disciples desire to follow him and he asks, what are you looking for? And just like he did with those two disciples, Jesus asks the same thing of you tonight. High school student, junior high student, what are you seeking? What are you pursuing? What are you willing to sacrifice for? What are you committed to? What are you willing to work hard after? What are you passionate about? What keeps you up at night? What wakes you up in the morning? What gives you energy throughout the day? What fills your cup? What satisfies you? What is a thing that you could not live without? I understand there's a lot of earthly answers that may be appropriate (laughs) to the answer these questions. But if the deepest, biggest, overarching answer to this question isn't Jesus, there is a problem in your soul. There is a reconciliation that needs to happen. Student, you need to pursue Jesus, and I pray that you would. Because when Jesus asks you, what are you seeking? And your answer isn't you. It's you, Jesus. You are the one that I want. You need far, far more than a practical plan to become a better disciple. You need Jesus to perform a miracle in your heart. You need him to rip out the stony, dead heart that you were born with, that all of us were born with in Adam because of his sin and now because of our sin. You need God to perform open heart surgery and rip out that heart and transplant a new heart that's living and beating. This is a miracle. But the sweetest news that you will ever hear is that Jesus loves performing this miracle. He loves it. He loves it. If you haven't received that miracle, whether you've been a part of Redeemer Students for five years or 30 minutes, I encourage you to do so. Plead with the Lord and ask that he would change your heart, that you would see Jesus not as this figure of my imagination, not as this phony character according to society, but as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Whether that means you need to do this right now in your heart, quietly, or you need to ask about it in small group, or you need to ask your parents about it on the way home, or you need to contemplate it before you go to bed, whatever it takes, you need to be reconciled to Jesus.
And Hebrews 11.6 promises us that God is a rewarder to those who honestly seek Him. If this is your heart cry, God will answer that. Pray that God will allow you to see Him as He really is. Unless we recognize Jesus, we will not pursue Him as we ought. Circling back to our question, to the question Jesus asked of these disciples, also asks of you tonight, what are you seeking? How do they respond? Let's look. Verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. They understand he has authority. Where are you staying? (laughs) Where are you staying? This is actually kind of a funny response. You imagine... Someone's saying, hey, what do you want? And you say, where do you live? (laughs) Like, that'd be an odd response. But it's because they're getting at something deeper. Because they're recognizing they're not just interested in something that Jesus can offer them. They're not just interested in a handout. They're not just interested in loaves and fish for free. They're not just interested in self-help, in some advice that's going to fix their relationships. They're interested in Jesus. And they want to know him. And they're willing to pursue him even to his house. (laughs) They seek to stay with Jesus, to dwell with Jesus, to be in his presence. And it is sad that many of us grow bored of Jesus. Maybe you think of a time in your life at summer camp or retreat or special Wednesday night or Easter morning maybe, Sunday morning. Where you had this encounter with God and it was so great and you loved being there and you loved being in his presence. And that was all you wanted. And now you feel distant. You feel removed from that. You feel that the affections of your heart don't line up with the truth that you understand. You know that Jesus is God. You know that he is Lord and you have trusted in him to be your savior. And yet he doesn't excite you. Some of you spending time with Jesus feels more like an obligation than it does a privilege. Listen to how the Lord responds. Verse 38, come and you will see. Come and you will see. Student, if you're weary, if you're wayward, if you're lazy or you're lost, you need to go to Jesus. He invites you. He invites you to come see him as he is. Not as our minds imagine him to be, but as he is. And I pray that each of you would meet with Jesus personally every day. Not just on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. And I understand some of you have the capacity to read tons of books. And you can sit down and you can read five chapters, ten chapters of the Bible every single day. Praise God for that. But maybe some of you can only read one verse. And maybe some of you can pray for an hour straight nonstop with no problem. But some of you can only hardly pray for a minute. doesn't matter the quantity of what you can do. Your heart cry needs to be that you would meet Jesus every day. Every day. To see this Jesus who has invited you into a personal relationship with him because he has reconciled all who believe in God through his death on the cross. This is why. This is our motivation. We come back to the gospel. The good news that fills us up. Never graduate from the gospel. (laughs) There's never some next step that all of a sudden the gospel is obsolete. It's part of the Christian's life day in and day out because we need grace every day. We need to be reminded of the truth that Christ has set us free and he has done it for freedom that we can pursue him with our whole heart. These two true disciples wanted it. 
They pursued Jesus to his house because they wanted to know more of who he was. They were not satisfied with a little. They were not satisfied with a 10-second glance at the king. They wanted to know him. They wanted more. They recognized Jesus, which leads them to pursue Jesus. But that's not all. Notice how their understanding of God, which transforms their lives, doesn't stop there. It's not just fixing this relationship between God and man, but now it goes out. That's because true disciples, number three, bring others to Jesus. Bring others to Jesus. It's interesting that not until verse 40 in this passage do we actually learn the identity of who these two guys are that are now following Jesus. It says one of the two was Andrew, and though the other one isn't clearly identified, it's almost all scholars agree that this is John, the guy who wrote this book, the Apostle John. And these two men, <clears throat> what do they do? Verse 41 This is what Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, does. The moment after they wake up, after spending the night with Jesus, what do they do? He first found his brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah. We found the one that we have been praying for, hoping for, searching for, looking for. And the author adds, this is Christ. This is the Christ. This is to put our minds together. And what does he do with his brother? What does he do with his brother? Does he just say, we found him? It was cool. No. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Young Christian, is your life characterized by bringing other people to Jesus? Is that a mark that you bear in your school, on your sports team, at home even? Are you known as someone who brings others to Jesus? Some of you immediately say no because... I don't know how to do that, or I don't think I can. Bringing others to Jesus means to invite others to share in learning of the God who has saved you. You don't need a PhD. You don't need 10 years of experience being a Christian. You don't need to be living in the church for very long. You don't need to know very much at all. All it requires is a willingness to invite someone with you into your life to follow Jesus as you follow him. And this is what we call discipleship. And I understand that the idea of discipleship, this title of discipleship, can sound overwhelming or hard to comprehend or hard to see at least me doing. But the truth is, is that it's not just an encouragement, but rather a command, according to Matthew 28, that we are to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is a command from God. Our church just released a resource to help with this. Maybe some of you have seen this on, on Sunday mornings. It's called the Field Guide. There's all sorts of great information in it. And in one of the things in it is what we call the path of discipleship. So it's a six-step path that works from conversion, meeting Jesus, recognizing Jesus as he is, all the way until cultivating disciples, until creating relationships with people that are going to propel the gospel by creating more of those relationships. If you haven't got one yet, please come on Sunday morning. We'd love to pass them out for those who are interested in being a part of this. And though I know some of you faithfully attend other churches on Sunday mornings, which I say press on, be invested there as much as you possibly can. Encourage your brothers and sisters in the faith in whatever way you can. But for those at Redeemer Church, Redeemer Church, who call Redeemer Church your home, we need to, we need to press into this. 
We need to press into this. Well, how do we make this happen? We use one of the two forms of discipleship, informal or formal. Formal discipleship means you agree to meet with a person, usually one person at a time. Sometimes you can do more. At a specific interval, whether that be every week, every other week, every month, you go through a specific book, a topic, a passage of the Bible, section of the Bible, and you do so for a specified amount of time. That's formal discipleship, and it can be really helpful in shaping habits and learning about who Jesus is and learning how to walk the Christian life. Many of you students are actually capable of doing this, whether you believe it or not. And I encourage you to pursue this. But what I want to see explode in Redeemer students is informal discipleship. Informal discipleship. This actually formed a huge bulk of Jesus' ministry with his 12 disciples, and it should take up the bulk of our lives too. Mark Dever, a great author, provides a quote on this. He says, So much of discipling is just doing what you ordinarily do, but bringing people along with you and having meaningful conversations like Jesus did. It's not that complicated. Informal discipleship doesn't have the same structure, but it does still require two things. First, it must be personal. It must be personal. You have to invite a person into your life. You can't just informally disciple someone that you Zoom call once every month. Like, that doesn't work. They need to be involved in your life. They need to see how you interact. They need to see how you treat people. They need to be involved with what's going on. Ways to do this, you can invite them to sports games, to grocery stores, to walks in the parks, to dinners at one another's houses. All these are great places to start, and there's many more. You could probably come up with 100 in your small group. Junior hires, who maybe you can't do as many of these, you still can do some. And I encourage you, ask your parents. They will be thrilled to help you. (laughs) Ask them to help. But what I have described so far is just being friends with someone. That just sounds like a friendship. And that's because that's all that is. What transforms friendship into discipleship is that it is, number two, it's centered on Jesus. It must be intentional. Even informal discipleship must be intentional. These conversations flow from the things that you naturally share, but they can't end there. They can't end there. When you're sharing life with another friend, you need to be encouraging them towards Christ, not pulling them away from him. When you're with your friends, are you using your words to build each other up or to tear each other down? Are you using your words to gossip or are you using your words to encourage one another in the Lord according to his word? Are you challenging each other? Are you calling one another to a higher standard of living because Jesus has set you free for freedom to pursue him? Do you exhort one another every day as long as it's called the day so that you don't grow to love sin more than God? Those are characteristics of informal discipleship. Are you making idols of the worldly things in your life with your friends, like sports and video games and theaters, which which are all good things given by God as gifts, but they're just gifts. And as soon as we place them at the highest priority, they become an idol, and that becomes sin. God has given us these things so that we might bring praise to God as the giver of all good things. They need to be in the rightful place. Informal discipleship really is attainable for each of you. It really is. It's not not that complicated. I believe each of you can do this. This is attainable. 
But it's not attainable unless you have first recognized Jesus as God and you have submitted your life to him. Unless you are willing to pursue Jesus wherever he goes to follow wherever he leads. Unless you're willing to cut off your right hand so that you can enter the kingdom of heaven with the Lord. Unless you are willing to give up whatever he asks, whether it be a friendship, a hobby, an interest, a sport, relationship, a job. We have to be willing. And it comes, it's motivated by knowing who Jesus is. We must be willing to pursue Jesus wherever he goes. True disciples bring others to Jesus. Know that it's not about you providing salvation. It's not about you saving someone. And that's really good news. Because you are not capable of that. I am not capable of that. You are not even capable, like me, Of causing someone to grow. We are incapable of that. It is God who causes the growth. But God commands us. Invite these people into your lives. Let them see you. Let them know you. Share life with them. Do things together. And trust that God is the one who causes the growth. Christian, if you want to be faithful to this call, here's what you do. Find someone who knows more than you. And learn from them. And find someone who needs what you know and teach them. Find someone who knows more than you and learn from them. And then find someone who needs what you know and teach them. Share in how Jesus has changed your life and pray that Jesus would change their life in the same way. Each of you can do that. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at discipleship modeled in your word I ask that you would encourage these young students there are many things in this world that are discouraging and yet when we look to Jesus when we behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world does not our hearts burn within us the disciples on the Emmaus road Lord I pray that that would be the case in the hearts of each of these students here tonight, that they would not be content with just knowing Jesus, but that their drive would be to bring others to encounter the same God that they have. And Lord, this is a miracle. So we ask that you would work this miracle. We ask that you would humble us to remind us that you do not need us. God is not served with human hands as though he needed anything according to Acts 17. And yet you invite us into the privilege of sharing in the work of ministry, of changing hearts, God. You give us the opportunity to be a part of that. And I pray that these students would long to do that and they would welcome that process in their lives. Be with us tonight in our small groups. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You are dismissed to small groups.